My name is Nicola Padel, and I'm here to welcome you to this connecting conversation this evening in Bristol. This connecting conversation happens today thanks to two Bristol-based organisations of 30 years standing, which we are most fortunate to have here in Bristol. The Bridge Foundation for Psychotherapy and the Arts, and the Sevenside Institute for Psychotherapy. The Bridge Foundation is a Bristol charity offering psychoanalytic psychotherapy and counselling for children and their families, as well as for adults, and works in partnership with a number of schools in Bristol, offering counselling for children and their parents and staff support. Recognising the value of thinking about the complexities of many work contexts, the Bridge also offers supervision to a range of professional groups. Moreover, it puts on not only psychoanalytic conferences, but <coughs> conferences on the arts and psychoanalysis, perhaps the best known of those being the Shakespeare one at the Tobacco Factory. The Sevenside Institute for Psychotherapy offers intensive psychoanalytic psychotherapy, some under a reduced fee scheme, across the Southwest and is also a training institute offering clinical training for potential psychodynamic and psychoanalytic therapists. Sevenside runs introductory courses for people interested in finding out more about psychoanalytic thinking, and it hosts public lectures and art events. Bruno Schrecker is a renowned cellist, most particularly known perhaps as cellist of the Allegri Quartet. He was born in Frankfurt am Main in 1928 to a musical and Anglophile family who moved to England in 1935 because of events in Germany and settled in Wimbledon. Luckily for us, Bruno took England as his home and England welcomed him. Bruno has a special ability to assimilate and make best use of influences, primarily musical of course, that stretches back to include his lessons with the founder of 20th century cello playing, Pablo Casals. He synthesizes and communicates these influences and his passion for music and delights in doing so to receptive musicians. There could be no one better to connect in conversation with him than Kate Barrows, training analyst with the British Psychoanalytical Society and Tavistock Clinic trained child psychotherapist, author of papers not only about psychoanalysis but also on literary and musical topics, and who is passionate about music and what it does for us. As it happens, I'm a pupil of each of them in their own fields <laughs> and can speak for their talents to communicate their experience and thoughts. So I ask you to join me in welcoming them for what I'm quite sure will be a fascinating conversation and I shall be returning to facilitate your questions at the end. Thank you. Well, th thank you. Can everybody hear? And if anybody can't, will you put your hand up? because we're going to try and talk naturally. Um, and I would like to start by asking you, Bruno, um, how you first came to music, and uh, was it uh, a, a yes, musical family? Yes, I first family? came to music, really through my brother, who's still alive, he's 90, bless his cotton socks. And uh, he, he, he was a very good violinist when he was a boy, he was, and uh, I was full of admiration for him, and. Uh, I heard Beethoven sonatas and Handel sonatas and all that music I, I heard as a child and uh, it put me on the path to classical music and 
I never needed anything else really. No. That's how it started. Did your parents love music or play? My parents were very, very fond of music. They were Mm. very, quite educated people. They didn't actually play musical instruments, but they they knew all about it and could steer in the right direction. But your brother played the violin and you chose the cello, right? Yes, yes. I mean, I always thought that maybe I chose the cello because it was bigger. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, but, uh, since I've matured a little bit since that time, I I do find it is the closest thing to to the human, I wouldn't say hardly say voice, because it's it's just part of the being, you know. And I'm not very good about the human voice, but... uh, I think it's as close as you can get to the heart, as it were. Mm. It's resting on there. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it gets to the heart and soul, but also it has the range of the male and female yes. voices, doesn't yes, it? Yes, that's and right. And quite often in a piece of music, you'll yes. have an alternation between the two. I do remember yeah. as a child loving the bass bit. Yes. And wishing I was playing the double bass, which is ridiculous, isn't it? <laughs> No. <laughs> it's lucky for cellists that you took the yes. cellists, I know, not ridiculous. It would be an easier life, I have to say. <laughs> but you couldn't have played in a quartet. <laughs> well, I always wanted to play in a quartet. Mm. I do remember my brother getting people. He was ultimately didn't become a musician, but he was in the Imperial College in London, in, in South Ken. And all his friends were at the Royal College of Music, and they used to play quartets together. And I remember the Eine Kleine Nachtmusik, wall to wall. And I still love it. I think it's the most wonderful piece. Yes. However hackneyed it is, it's a, it's a great piece of music. It's a wonderful about And it, it just steered me straight into quartets. Mm. But how did you come to actually start playing the cello? Uh, well, that was a... Uh, uh, I'm, I'm full of regret on, on, on a particular level, and that is that I always wanted to play the cello ever since I was about four. And I didn't get the opportunity until I was 15. Um, reason being war and, I don't know, parental anxiety and a lack of forcing one's way, you know. I, did, I was not a person to push at anything, you know. So, um, but my mother was instrumental in, in getting a... Um, very famous cellist over from Prague. He was the principal cello of the Czech Philharmonic uh, on the last possible you know, opportunity to England to get him domiciled in England. And he was um, tucked away in Devon and I was evacuated there as well. And I used to listen to him practising, mm. but I didn't have an instrument. And I got an instrument when I was 15. Mm. Which is late. It's a late start, and uh, I've always regretted it, but it's pointless regretting it, really. <laughs> it, well, I, I think that's true, considering how far you went. And, and how qu- I think that's true, in a way, considering how far you went with the cello and, and how quickly. Well, but yes. thinking of the evacuation to Devon, you went without your family, did you? Yes, so yes. I, my brother came for the first bit of it. Yes. Um, my middle brother, my eldest brother, was in London at the time. He was interned, in fact, interned in uh, Peel. Mm. But that was the way it was. So you'd, you'd been brought to this country um, from Frankfurt, and then you'd been sent from London to, to Devon. So that's yes. been very well, actually, yeah. 
Although I was born in Frankfurt, I lived for several years in Czechoslovakia in Prague. Uh-huh. Okay. And I'm bringing that up for the reason that I've always had a terrific love of Czech music. Yes. And that goes right back to my childhood again when I heard all those Vltavas and things like that, you know, yes. New World Symphony and that sort of thing. Yeah. And of course, wonderful cello music too. Yes, yeah. exactly. The, I yes. heard the Dvorak Cello Concerto played by Carol Horitz, this, this Czech cellist. Yes. And I always thought of a marvellous thing. I never thought I would play it. I did. Yes. Maybe not very well, but I did play it. Yes. <laughs> did the best. Yes. Uh, I, I was thinking about the, the image of you um, in Devon, uh, evacuated, and very much admiring the, the, the Czech cellist who'd been got out just in time, and you separated from your parents yes. and from your brother some of the time. And it's, it's, it's quite a poignant image, actually, and it, it makes me think of how music often seems to be about conjuring up the absent, the absent person. Yes, he's a sort of parent, sorry, he place. certainly was, yes. he certainly was. Yeah. Yes. And, and the cello was a part and of it, so which is absolutely right. Went sort of straight to your heart, really, yes. hearing so the music. So the cello becomes yeah. almost human, doesn't it? It does, yeah, it does. So you, you finally acquired a cello when you were 15. Yes. And then... And the Carol was very meticulous in his teaching. And since that time, that has been a, always a part of the way I teach as well. He, he was not on the, the, the level of a Casals. Uh, he was rather a sort of stiff player. He was very clever, but he wasn't very warm or anything, you know. Mm. So I, I adapted my technique afterwards, but he was meticulous and I managed within a year to get a scholarship to the Royal College of Music. Within a year of beginning? Within a year of starting to play. Well, you said you didn't... I played the Brahms E minor, mm. so to the said, you know, you've got to work bloody hard you to have. play that at all, let so, alone well. So you didn't push to get a cello, but you pushed when you got one, didn't you? Yeah, very, but I didn't mind that. No, absolutely. I remember him phoning me up and saying, I will give you lessons free if you promise to practice. Will you promise? I said, I promise. And you did. And I did. And you have ever and since. And I still do. You still do. <laughs> yes. Although you're so tolerant of some of your pupils who don't so much. <laughs> I try and encourage detail. You do. Absolutely. Uh, and that, in a way that leads us, I think, to your time with Pablo Casals, doesn't it? Yes. Um, where, where you felt you had can such I just, a role. Can yeah. I fill in the college, my college career, which yes, sp- spanned about four or five years? Mm. At the end, I played a piece by Bloch called Shalomo with the orchestra. Mm. And um, a quartet that had lost its cellist asked me to join them at the end of my college days. And that was... Um, Financed by the British, uh, by the Arts Council, but it, it it blew apart after a couple of years, and I took a scholarship, a French government scholarship, and somehow or other, I was in contact with Casals, 
I was auditioned by André Navarra, who offered me a place in the Conservatoire in Paris. And I said to him, thank you very much, Mr. Navarra, but I'm going to Casals. <laughs> and he was terribly nice about it. It's a terribly arrogant thing to say at the age of 23. <laughs> I don't think so. It was a well, pretty amazing choice to be able to make, wasn't well, it? Well, it, <laughs> it took the wind out of his sails, I must say. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So that that's so that got to Casals, and having you know studied concertos and all the rest and done a lot of quartets professionally and all the rest, he took me right back to the beginning again. He took me back to playing in tune. To, didn't to he? playing yeah. in tune. To yes. How to play in tune? Yes. And the very simplest groupings of fingers, but with great attention to. Um, relaxation is the wrong word, uh, flexibility and understanding how fingers really work. May I talk about the technique a little bit and that is that doctors will know that this second and third finger, these two, inclined to want to be together and if you try and separate semitones like that, see how stiff that is, whereas if you want to play a whole tone here and a semitone there, and you just let it go, that second finger will go towards the third. And there you are. You've got a nice semitone there and a whole tone there. And if you want a semitone here, you just spread out your fingers there, and then you have a nice whole tone there, and it's still it's flexible. And it's all to do, and, I, and he had me for two weeks. First week I was allowed to put the third finger down, second week I was allowed to put the second finger down. That was the extent of his and he said, one of the first things he said to me, Bart, it is your duty to play in tune. Your duty. <laughs> it's, it's true. Something. It's true. <laughs> your duty to whom? It's interesting, isn't it? Your duty well, it's, your duty. That, that, is, uh, that is the wonderful thing about his whole philosophy was one that it was uh, a complete human activity that... Uh, was all to do with everything, and as quite, it were. And it's your duty to truth. And yes, you talk about yes. the true note, it's your Absolutely, duty to truth, the true note. Not, not to listen to something false. It's amazing how yeah. beautiful the centre of a note can be. Quite, yeah. And how disturbing it is to somebody who has explored that when it doesn't happen. <laughs> yes. Because, in fact, when you hit the centre of a note in tune, then you get all sorts of resonances. Yes, the instrument itself, you see, has harmonics. You know about harmonics. And those harmonics will resonate if a note is in tune, especially the notes like G and C. You know, all the notes that relate to the open strings. And then the harmonics on those strings will sound if the note is in tune. If the note is not in tune, it's your duty to notice that it isn't resonating. <laughs> and this is very interesting to me as a, a psychoanalyst because uh, we are, spend a lot of time listening and we are really listening for, for what's true. And it yes. sounds corny, but you, know, you can use the word for what resonates. Yes. And you have to really be always trying to distinguish between what's false and what's true. Yes. And what leads in a, a meaningful direction and what is fluff or something that's covering something up. Yes. So the, yes. Lis the listening it's all in psychoanalysis it's all is... uncovering, isn't it? It is, and it's very similar, in a way, yes. because you're listening for, for what's yes. true. And it's not forcing, you see. What you're well, saying is that you never force, when you're having a relationship with a client, you never force anything. Mm. 
you just encourage a response. And that's the same with music. You, you don't force it. Mm. I heard a performance today of a Mozart concerto, violin concerto. It was about the ugliest performance of anything I've ever heard. <laughs> All sort of technical tricks and not a single note of music. It was absolutely horrendous. And that's a trap, you know. Technique is a trap because uh, you learn all sorts of tricks if you're not careful and you, mm. you regard them as tricks mm. and you try and impress your fellows with these tricks mm. and they add up to nothing. So it's a sort of misuse of technique, uh, which would be... Well, it's a misunderstanding yeah. of what technique exactly. is. I think a lot of people think that technique is, is facility and velocity. Mm. Being able to play fast, and loud, that is technique. <laughs> and in a quartet, fast, loud, and together. <laughs> and maybe in tune. And even the, all those three things, if you've got those, you still aren't playing quartets properly. <laughs> so what do you have to do to play quartets you properly? You have to have some insight, and it takes a good deal of rehearsal, as yes. Keith knows. <laughs> Keith, we used to play quartets together. He was in the Allegri for years, weren't you, Keith? You can't hide. <laughs> <laughs> and presumably you have to sort things out and thrash things out with the other members of the quartet. Yes. I mean, the ideal, of course, in rehearsing quartets is to say as little as possible and to influence each other by just playing well. That's interesting, yes. And listening. Mm -hmm. the, the, I heard Paul Watkins, does anyone know the wonderful cellist Paul Watkins, playing with the Emerson Quartet now. And they were having a master class in Cardiff. And somebody asked a question, what is the most important thing about playing quartets? And various members of the quartets gave long answers. And Paul said, listen. Lovely silence, you see. That's wonderful, isn't it? Listen. Because listening to yourself is, a, is, is very hard. I try and teach people to listen to themselves. Mm. And very often they don't hear what they're doing. Mm. And that's the first, first lesson, is to actually hear what you are doing. Then, when you know what you are doing, then you listen to the others. And then you can almost forget what you're doing because you know it's going to come out OK. As long as they're playing in tune, your note will be in tune with it. That sort of thing. But it is the hardest thing to do. You make it sound so easy. Well, it is easy, of course, after years of doing it. Yes. And um, easy not, but, um, but it's so fascinating and such a wonderfully fulfilling thing. Yes. Unfortunately, the financial aspect is not very fulfilling. Yeah. Do you know how to become a millionaire if you play quartets? Um, advertisements, music, that kind no. of thing, no? Start off as a multi-millionaire. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, so it's, it's not wandering way. off the point of it's, it, It's Kate. not the way to make money, but it's certainly <laughs> the way for, to have a, a very satisfying... Oh, I, I haven't minded yeah. very much. I've, we've got through all right. And <laughs> great friendships... Isn't it, Keith? That's right. Wonderful friendships. Great rows, too. Great rows, yes. <laughs> well, what's a great friendship with a row or two? <laughs> well, yes, there's always a fly in the ointment somewhere. Mm. Bound to be, isn't there? Mm. 
that uh, we, 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 we struggled through and we, we actually got on very well together, didn't we? We quite enjoyed being with each other and that sort of thing. Got to know each other's families and it's all. It becomes a very holistic thing, mm. a family thing. It becomes an extended family. Absolutely. The only trouble with a quartet is that if you get married to a single person, they're just the two of you and you go into a quartet and there are not three partners, you know. Quite. That's... <laughs> That's a bit excessive sometimes, yes. trying to be nice to them all. <laughs> On the other hand, it's, it is an extended family and a community, it is. isn't it? Yes, 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 yes. Which is terrific, yeah. So I was thinking about Casals and um, him being so good at get, helping you to observe. And yes. you're talking about people listening to each other. Yes. And, and the observation, I just for, for those who don't know, is a sort of key element of psychoanalytic training and, and child psychotherapy training. The, uh, the observer, an observer will, the person doing the training, will go in and observe a mother and a baby for the first couple of years of life. Yeah. And they don't have any role apart from being that of observer. And they have to also observe how they feel about the situation and they go away and write notes and then talk about it in a seminar. And it's a, a tremendous exercise because it just makes you um, realise how much you're not seeing normally, just like you might realise how much you're not hearing normally yes, if, right. if you try and yes, listen right. yes. in a quartet. And it makes you also realise, like you were saying in a way, that you have quite a lot of influence without saying anything. You have a, Absolutely. You have a when, when the rehearsal was going well, yeah. nothing was necessarily said, was it? it? I mean, it should it should be evident if if the first fiddle has got a musical idea in his head and you're listening to what he's doing, what is going to follow? Peter used to say, Bruno knows what I'm going to do before I do. <laughs> you know, and, and there was something in that because I, I really knew what direction his music was going. You mm. know? And... So nothing need be said. Mm. But the observing thing, Casals did say to me one day, look me straight in the eye, as near as you are to me with both. He said, observe, observe. <laughs> and I thought, oh my God, I must watch to see what he's doing. And of course, years later, I realised the idea was that I should notice what I'm doing as well. <laughs> you know, because it's very hard as a, as a player. A lot of you will be players. Are a lot of you players? Hands up, people who play. Yes. Quite a lot. Yes, you see, uh, as a player, it's quite hard to hear objectively what you're actually sounding like. You hear in your head what you'd like to sound like, and then you try and cover it up because it isn't sounding so like that. <laughs> That's the psychology of it. Mm. And you think next time? Next time it'll be better. Mm. And one thing Casals did say was, if you play a note out of tune, it's an accident. Next time you play it, play it especially well. Don't beat yourself up, you see. If you're, if you're playing and something goes wrong, then it's pointless beating yourself up because it's past. There's, he had good psychology. Mm. Absolutely. And he was encouraging in the sense that, that uh, he asked me one day, why do you play this like that? So I said, well, I was told that it was in the Baroque fashion to play like that. So I said, and what does your intuition tell you? Oh, well, I'd rather, and then I'd demonstrate it. He said, your intuition is good. Why don't you follow it? To follow one's intuition, it doesn't mean to say that you sort of wildly go about and express yourself, because when you're practicing, you're always sorting through ideas, and you're constantly changing things until they become more convincing. 
and uh, that's how it's done. Mm. Yeah. And what strikes me about the concert? It isn't. It isn't an act. You don't play sort of emote while you're playing. That that doesn't work. Some people do it a bit, and you can hear it in their playing. Listen to me playing, and it's fine, and it's all going like this all the time, and it has no shape, you know. But um, to be objective about what you're doing, you can gradually let go and, and start to let what you've practiced come over as being the first time you've played it. But it's never actually the first time you've done it that way, because you've practiced it that way, many different ways. But you have practiced it many different ways. Yes. And you have been convinced on different days. Yes, that definitely. That's another way definitely. of doing it. And definitely. it strikes me that definitely this Definitely different from one day to the and next. And it keeps it constantly alive. Yes. And once you start repeating, you think, oh, I know this bit, then you're sort of done yes. for. You've actually got to keep it alive by thinking yes. all the time about how, yes. how it's done. I've had, what I've what had, it says. I've had very good fortune because I have a very bad memory. And the same cadence will sound wonderful to me every time I hear it because it's, it sounds new. You know? So I'm, I'm lucky that way. I listen to Beethoven and oh, I've noticed that before. Yes. <laughs> wonderful. Well, again, since we're having a connecting conversation about music and psychoanalysis, somebody who comes to see me may talk about the same sort of things many times, but actually, every time round, they're different. It's like hearing Do they use the same words or do they use different words? I think part of the interest of it is trying to use different words and yes. trying to find different ways of thinking about it, like you would try and find different approaches to yes. the music. So in a way you keep it alive by recognising the freshness in something that uh, somebody outside might sound the same. And it, if it really gets too much the same, then you know things aren't going well. There needs to be a feeling of development and yes. a way of experimentation yes. with thinking, uh, like there's experimentation with thinking in, in, your, in, in the way that you approach a piece of music. Yes. And it's never, it never gets to the point of putting yourself in a position of being a judge of what it is. It's almost as if something were nagging at you from behind and not you at all. Yes. Some other force. Although if you become judgmental, that is something you have to be able to observe. <laughs> yes, <laughs> well, in, your, in a quartet it becomes an absolute pain if you're judging somebody else. <laughs> oh, God. And in the middle of a concert it used to happen sometimes, I wanted to kill somebody. <laughs> Just murder them, that's all. Thank goodness you're in the middle of a concert. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I couldn't do it on stage and I didn't dare do it afterwards. <laughs> yes. I was thinking about um, the connections between music and psychoanalysis because I feel that there are some in that they're both to do with feelings and with very deep feelings. And I was thinking about what's particular about music uh, as an art form. Well, one, of course, this, so this is also so, say, with drama, but music, it exists in time. Uh, it, it happens, it develops, it concludes and it's over, in a way, a, like a psychoanalytic session in a way. And also, the, the very particular thing about music, I think, is that there are many voices going on at the same time. And you'll be, if, you know, the more you can hear, the more you will be, be able to hear And ideally no voices. words. And uh, no words, exactly, but you can hear the, 
themes that oh, come yes. and go, rhythms that come and go. And I think the human mind, if this isn't too fanciful, is, is a bit like this, in that we don't think in a linear fashion. There are all sorts of things coming in and out of our minds. Part of our thinking is linear, but a lot of it is different voices interacting. And psychoanalysts talk about it as the internal world, as if it's sort of populated by people. It's populated by different characters who interrelate. And in, so in a sense, I think music's a terrific representation of the, of the human mind and its complexity. And, yes, and you the, think of those finales of Mozart operas where you have success. Absolutely, in, isn't yes, it? yes. And you hear it also in his chamber music, the quintets particularly. You do. All the interaction of each voice as, as a person. The human, human things. The more human composer there hasn't been than Mozart. He's been the most human of all composers. Absolutely. And you can hear them as, well, they are separate people singing, but you can also hear them as an entity. Yeah, and responding to each other. Responding to each other. Yes. And different voices in his mind, aren't they, really? Yes. And uh, so it seems to me that that's a something very much in, in common and, and that one is listening out for these different voices and, and wanting uh, to yes. be able to see where they, to lead, understand. where they lead and which is the important one at the time. In a quartet you're thinking, well, yes. who, which is the important voice at this point in time? We can't all play uh, with the same dynamic. Yeah, there's a wonderful thing about time. balancing the whole thing. Exactly. It can be linear, yes. it can be chordal, yes. it can be both. Mm. Yes. Uh, Daniel Barenboim thought that um, music was a very good civilizing influence because it, it should help us to be part of a group uh, yes. because the, the different voices are part of a group, say, yes. in, in an opera, or the yes. different voices within a piece of music. And even within a phrase, if you have a note that stands out too much, well, that's not very civilised. <laughs> You've got to find what is, what is a, yes. a good shape for this phrase or a good balance between the voices. You could say the same of the, of the human mind or you can see it on the societal level. Yes, um, what, what, is, what is the psycho, psychoanalyst take on Baron Boehm's view, which is absolutely one I share, of music in the background wherever you go? Uh, Hans Keller used to talk about background music should be banned, there's only foreground music. And I've gone along with it because that's natural, feels natural to me, but the vast majority of the population aren't even aware of, of background, background music. music and I, I find that music is a terrible intrusion, whether, whether it's good music or mm. bad music. Mm. Down in Barrenboim would walk, walk up ten floors and, rather than going in a lift with music yes, in it, wouldn't yes, he? Yes. Yeah. Well, he's quite a stubborn man. <laughs> <Quite>. <laughs> well, this psychoanalyst's view is, is that the, the Muzak sort of kills music. You don't listen to it. Uh, and it yes, it, it's, and that's what Keller called background music. It should be in the it. foreground. You get used to it without listening yes. to it, and so it dulls your ability to, to listen to it. In I fact, think. it's only a sort of... Balm, isn't it? It's something you put on your face to stop pimples from growing. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And another thing about music, about sound, also mentioned by Baron Boyne, is, is that we have the capacity to hear from our 45th day in the womb. So, so hearing is by far the oldest sense. 
I mean, I believe we have the sort of shimmering of light coming through our eyelids a bit later on, but actually you can hear fairly well from very, very early on in the womb. Yes. And you cannot shut your ears. That's something that occurred to me. So actually, your, your ears are incredibly sensitive. Uh, and it strikes me that this is an important part of music too, that it... it it's through the ears that we communicate, uh, and, and that we communicate some of the deepest, uh, um, deepest passions, deepest yes. feelings. It's very sad, isn't it? Because the vast majority of human beings grow up in a world where there's a lot of ugly noise and anger and very little good music, or what you know, very little in the womb. Mm. They hear all this anger and frustration in, ar around the, the mother, as it were. It could be very damaging to the person oh, before not, birth, I as think it, it were. It probably could, but uh, they could also hear good music or the mother singing or yes, harmonious... Yes, well, often they do, don't they? Exactly, or harmonious conversations. Yes, um, yes. Yeah. But imagine being in in the Middle East now, with, with mm. all this stuff going on. Unborn babies, just new babies. Would be, would be terrifying. No yeah. wonder that people are so heartless, aren't they? That's right, yeah. Well, that, yeah. So we look for heart in the music, and mm. we look for order. Yeah. Fantasy mm. and order. And both are equally important. You, you can't just have fantasy, sort of vaguely, I'm emoting, I'm so feeling so emotional. That's no, that gets you nowhere, that you have to have the order before you can fantasize. You put things in order, and the fantasy will then be allowed to filter through. Mm. So. So, uh, How are we doing? <laughs> we're, doing we're not doing terribly well, are we? I think we're doing pretty well. We've, <laughs> <laughs> we've talked for 35 minutes. <laughs> so, well, Kate plays quartets, you see, and so does Nicola. So we all, we're all in a sort of club together, really. So we know what we're talking about, more or less. <laughs> Nicola plays Bach a lot. And there's a lot of order to be put into Bach solo sonatas. All the lines, although there's a single line, it implies many other lines as well. And to sort those out is a very interesting yes. um, way of life, as it were. Absolutely. I suppose another question is really um, about which I don't expect us to have the answer to, but it is why is music so therapeutic? To practice, if you can do it honestly, even to try and play one note in tune, is an incredibly therapeutic experience. Yeah. If you feel ruffled, you can feel really calmed or in touch through even it's just so trying to play a tune. It's and so important. It's, it's so important. It's, and and it, it's proved by the fact that people want background music. They need music, but they choose the wrong music. And the wrong music is chosen for them. They have to accept that all new tunes are the best tunes. Old tunes are to be thrown out, only new tunes. Every, every week there has to be a top of the pops, and then a week later it's no good anymore, it's out of date. 
But um, There's no out-of-date good music. But what about all the good music that wasn't recognised at first? I mean, I'm, I, I don't ah, think most pop music is that's good another, music. That's, that's another, another thing, that's isn't another it? That's another one, yes. I mean, so somebody like a... Beethoven was, was sometimes... Yeah, he was challenging his listeners rather a lot, though, wasn't he? He, he was. <laughs> I mean, even those of us who play... We play the, all the Beethoven quartets, and at the end of Opus 130, you get a thing called the Grosser Fugue, Big Fugue, and it starts off with five minutes of total chaos. It's like Bartok, wonderful, wonderful music. But uh, when p- people first heard that, they must have thought he was mad. Mm, they probably thought this bloody pop music. Why yes, <laughs> yes. I don't want new music. I don't want the avant-garde. I want to stick with Haydn. <laughs> Haydn was the ideal man to stick with. Yes. <laughs> we are still sticking with him, aren't we? Uh, definitely, absolutely. When you play you... quartets, which, quart- which composer do you choose to play most of all? Most of all would be Haydn. Uh, would be Haydn. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. <sighs> but it is an interesting thought, isn't it? You know, about how do you tell what is the, what is the new music that's going to last. Well, it's impossible to be able to tell because no no generation has ever succeeded in doing that, have they? No, so you can't. It's always had to be, had to lie in in cellar for Mm. 50 years and then you bring out the bottle and you find it's a good one. Mm. Yes. I mean, poor Schubert, he didn't hear any of his later works, which were the masterpieces of masterpieces. Absolutely. You never heard the quintet? Never Incredible. heard the late piano sonatas. Yeah. Yes. Which are some of the most extraordinary works, yeah. Mind you, people liked his music, but I think he wrote that music for, for another generation, didn't he? Mm-hmm. Mm. Are we meant to talk about psychotherapy, aren't no, we? No, we don't. Have to. <laughs> <laughs> I think you can also talk about music. Yeah. <laughs> But the, the, the emotional experience is very difficult to describe, isn't it? That's what you're really getting at. Why is music so important? Quite. Why is it? And, it's a difficult and, one. And why is it so satisfying? All one can say is it's satisfying for me, thank God, and I hope that other people find it the same. <laughs> yeah. But it obviously goes to something very deep, either... Resonance is a strange thing, isn't it? It must have something to do with... Which must know about intonation and rhythm. Sometimes when people say they're not musical or they can't sing, I think, well, how can this be the case? Because listen to the human voice. It's got music in it, it's got dynamic, it's got rhythm, it's got pitch. Speech has got rhythm. Speech is full of music. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And when I'm teaching, I do try and teach... Um, sentences, commas, full stops, paragraphs, and chapters. And, uh, and the rise and fall of the voice, the rise and fall of the voice. Most people will play a musical phrase, the rise and fall of the voice, where you can't tell where the main accent comes. So they will play a phrase with four accents in it, and you don't actually recognise what the shape of that phrase actually is. Mm. But when you're speaking naturally, when you're speaking naturally, the accent comes at the end of the phrase. But when you're speaking naturally, the accent comes at the beginning of the phrase. But you have to convey to the listener your true understanding of what that phrase really means. And that's what 
quartet playing is about, actually. Absolutely. It? I mean, playing any music, of course. Mm. And and that, that Mozart concerto I heard oh. today was absolutely horrendous. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's also what listening to the human voice is about, and, and listening to, to how people are using their voice as well as to the content of what they're saying, yes. which is in, incredibly important. Where the emphasis is, if the voice is flat, absolutely. or where the emphasis yeah. is. How lively the voice is. My problem has always been that I haven't heard words, you know. Mm. Singers can sing with absolutely perfect diction, I don't hear the words, and that's very sad. Because, I mean, I, all right, I can follow Schubert leader if, if I see the words, that's mm -hmm. fine. And I can appreciate them, but uh, I've never been terribly opera lent towards opera because of that problem I have. Mm -hmm. And I'm not good on plots either. Lots of things I'm not good at, you see. <laughs> Can I come to you for a bit of help? <laughs> but I bet it's like many things that you do, that if you, if you work at them, you, you can do them, like you, you learn the words or you read the words. Or well, yes, I mean, if you actually can read the words and then you, then you listen to the music and you can see the words and then you've learnt what the words are and then you can hear the words, that's true. I, one of my very favourite pieces is an is a opera by Bartok called Bluebeard's Castle, where just two characters, and it's a very sort of psychological piece, and uh, all in Hungarian, but it's incredibly beautiful. Now, I had the, all the words in Hungarian and English and stuff, and I loved the sound of the Hungarian, oh. but, you know, again, music, it didn't mean anything until I read the until English you know, words, you know. Yes, but but yeah. the actual sound of the Hungarian is so beautiful. Hmm. Well, I, I don't like it when they sing Italian operas in English. It doesn't work, does you, it? It doesn't sound to. right. And it's not even right for the music, because the words don't fit well, the music. Well, each language has its own accentuation, yeah. Yeah. hasn't it? Mm. Puts, um, puts emphasis on different parts of a sentence or of a word, and then... You try and translate that, and of course it doesn't work quite. Mm, mm. And of course there's a whole uh, um, group of people in psychoanalysis who, who work with people from different countries with different languages. Yes. So that, that's a whole other area. Have, it, have you done that? Listening to another language. I, I have worked with somebody in French. And in fact, we ended ah, but up, you can speak French. Yeah, but I, actually, we ended up with her speaking French and me speaking English. Ah, yes, because I do speak English a bit better than I speak French. <laughs> and that way, we so understand. So My English isn't that good. <laughs> um, but the question of, of translation from from one language to another—it's interesting, isn't it? Because it doesn't some really it doesn't quite, quite work. work. You have to start again. Um, but yeah. I heard a lot of Czech when I was a little boy, you see. Yes. And I heard the Czech language. I didn't understand the language because I was German-speaking. And my grandparents were German-speaking Czechs, but they used to speak Czech to everybody around, you know. Um, what did they call it? Küchenbemerkung. <laughs> Kitchen bohemian. They called it kitchen bohemian in German. But I heard this language, and then I heard the music, and I could hear 
check in the music, and yes. I still hear it. I you know, I still, I can hear that uh, sound of that language. And with Hungarian, of course, you hear Hungarians speaking English, and they put the accent in the wrong place always, yes. don't they? Yeah. And then you hear why it's always sound like the first beat of da 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 da. So you hear the, the Czech language in the Czech music, do you? And well, I hear, I hear people talking in that funny language. Mm. Now, I don't understand it, but I, it's somehow here, you know. Mm. And that's why we talk about music being inexplicable. Of course it's inexplicable. I'm trying to tell you about something that I can't explain. Mm. But that I could possibly hear, mm. were you to play the music. Yes, when, you, when, when you're a professional player, I suppose what your job really is to communicate clearly what you perceive in that particular piece of music. And it doesn't mean to say that you put yourself into it. Of course, you have to involve yourself, but you don't put yourself in it. You involve yourself and you mm. become the channel through which that music is going. It's a very different thing. Listen to this wonderful piece to say, listen to me playing this wonderful mm. piece. I hear so many people forcing it on the listener. Listen to me, I'm playing the cello. Oh, wonderful. Every note is so beautiful, you know. It's not right. Might be for them, not for me. I guess as a chamber music player, you're... You're, you're very a, sensitive to that. You're very sensitive to yes. that. And in a way, it sort of must keep in control any tendencies to do that, does it? Yes, Because, yes, because you have course. to be listening to people. And I was very lucky with, with Casals because he was terribly good at being able to do several bows over a phrase, to be able to do a crescendo just before the up bow, you know, on the down bow, to be able to put more weight into the down bow and speed it up, and you don't actually hear that bow change. Mm -hmm. But most people will do a swell in the middle of the note, and then they think I must be light at the bow change, so they're light at the bow change, so the music does that all the time. Mm -hmm. But if you manage to do that crescendo towards the point, and then take the bow across, you can make the whole phrase do that over several bows. It's quite difficult to do, but it's nice. Sounds nice. If you Sometimes. See, if you see people changing bows and you cannot hear it, that's, that's pretty good. But also the point is to make the sense of the phrase, isn't it? Yes. I mean, it's the rise and fall of language, isn't mm. it? And it's no good talking like this because nobody is going to be interested in what you're saying. Mm. Are they? Because it's so <laughs> bloody boring, isn't it? Mm. <laughs> But it is the music of the human voice, but the, the human voice is about communication, isn't it? Yes, the interesting thing about music is, although there are no words in abstract music, it tells you so much. It tells you more, almost, than, a, than, than words do. Mm. It tells me more, because I'm so involved with it. Mm. And I've become so addicted to it. It's an addiction, maybe. I wouldn't say so. <laughs> My professional opinion well, would not be that it's an addiction. <laughs> I think it's a love rather than an addiction, actually, than music. It's something like that, though, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, it is. And, and of course, it, people who, who are very well-read are addicted to literature, aren't they? And they, through words, live a very, very um, fulfilled life. Mm. And I haven't, sadly, haven't had that. 
I've had it through music and I can't explain it. Mm. But through words, somebody who can talk about literature, I'm sure they can explain wonderfully in words what, mm. what they get from the literature. Well, in a way, you don't choose your art form, do you? It chooses, it chooses you. you. And, and the same with your instrument, it, it chooses you. So, so somewhere yes. uh, quite deep is where these things appeal to us. And we, we just actually have to listen to what, uh, to what appeals and, yes. and what touches us, I think. Yes. Um, so shall we open the discussion now? Well, thank you. If you all found that half as interesting as I did and fascinating and thought-provoking, then you've all had a wonderful time, which I'm sure you have. Um, hopefully there will be a roving microphone, and I'm hoping people will want to ask Bruno and Kate questions. Um, be great if you could keep your questions fairly brief so that we can get as many in without exhausting them after what they've given already. Um, so I think, Lorraine, have you got the... Um, mic Paul has the microphone. So... Questions, please. There's a mic coming your way. I may not need a mic, but Bruno, you mentioned the great Hans. Where are you? Where are you? <laughs> Hello. Does this work? Mike. See, it is Mike, isn't it? Yeah, I am. It's You've got your mic, Mike. Mike. Are you mic'd up, Mike? It doesn't seem to work, but I don't think... Yeah, it's fine. I can hear you very well. But not because of this, because I don't think it's a word. Oh, wonderful, yes. You mentioned the great Hans Keller. Yes. Did you know him personally? Yes, very well. Could you tell us something about him? I think he's one of the most interesting of the commentators of the 18th century. He had a dual personality, actually, Hans Keller, because an awful lot of people disliked him. Did you know that? Because he was so opinionated. I can imagine. He was incredibly opinionated. But he was, a, he was a producer on the BBC, and we did a lot of broadcasts with him. And he was just like a pussycat as a producer. He was wonderful and very sort of affectionate and, and enthusiastic about the music. But of course, the things that we played with his input were always the stuff he chose for us to play. So that played into his hands a bit. But he was very uh, meticulous about uh, the idea of the musical, the integrity of the musical phrase. Keith, is that right? Absolutely, yes. Keith, phrase, Keith knows him better than I did. So. what you were saying about not, you know, if, if you just stick to rhythmic accents, Yes. The music's incredibly boring. That's right. What you must look for is the main accent of the phrase, the main stress of the phrase. The main yes, phrase. that's right. And everything must lead up to it. But Hans was very good on that, wasn't Absolutely, he? Absolutely, yes. Yeah. But Keith, before I joined the quartet, was with the Dartington Quartet. And they were coached by Hans Keller for quite a time, weren't you? Well, yes. And he did some sort of musical analysis which was beyond our understanding, wasn't it? A bit, yeah. <laughs> but the timing of music, he was very aware of the subtleties of timing and phrasing. And if you, if you got it anything like right, I think he was pretty chuffed by it, right chuffed by it than I was. Isn't that right, Martin? He was right chuffed. <laughs> <laughs> one, one thing, uh, he was 
he seemed to be very arrogant. He I, did, didn't he? But I think it was a deliberate ploy because he, he wanted to provoke a reaction to what he said. Yes. And he would very often say things in a certain way, you know, to make people oh, well, a bit cross and so, so, they, so they would come back. He loved that when people rose to the bait, didn't he? He couldn't bear people to be passive. Yeah, that's right. But he, didn't he say that he was beaten up in a concentration camp before he came over to England? He said he would never be, what was it, miserable again. Didn't he say something like that? He, was, he, he, he got out of a concentration camp just before the war and came to England, and he vowed never to be depressed, allow himself the luxury of being depressed, which is quite interesting. Interesting man. He wrote all that book about the, the Haydn Quartets, didn't he? Have you got that? It's an interesting book, but it's too much in it. <laughs> yes, every, every one of Haydn's quartets was a masterpiece, according to Mr. Keller, wasn't it? Some were but masterpieces. Not, not, not the Emperor Quartet. Not the... Everyone <laughs> except that, I think. <laughs> yes, one of the best quartets, wasn't it, the Emperor? Dear old Hans, wish he were here. He died very sadly of motor neuron disease, didn't he? Uh, hello. Yes. Um, I wonder, do you improvise? Do I? Sorry. Do you improvise music? And I wonder what your thoughts and experience of improvising is. I'm deeply, deeply ashamed that I have never been able to improvise. And... Um, in performance, when you're recreating a piece of music, it can be as near to improvisation as possible if you've explored many ideas. But um, the, the, the truth of the matter is that improvisation is not a part of my equipment, and I, I do regret it very much. Sadly, do you improvise? Are you, are you, are you a musician? Yes, I'm, I'm a music therapist. And, oh, are you? And I um, try to train music, training music therapists to improvise. Um, I think that's a marvellous idea, isn't it? Because they have to learn to convey improvisation to the children and uh, that sort of thing. Thank you. Thank you. Um, uh, so you talked about music communicating something in the abstract. I'm curious when conveying the emotion in a piece. Say that again. The so you, you talk about music communicating something abstract. Abstract. So, yeah. Yes. So when you're conveying emotion in a piece. Yes. I'm curious. How often is that um, through linking it to a memory or to some imagined event or to some sort of human experience? And how often is it emotional, but it's purely abstract? You couldn't place it in any way, shape, or form. All, all I can say in answer to that is that an empty note for, from an instrument doesn't mean anything to me, so every note has some human connection. But it's terribly... It's impossible for me to say what the connection is, except that I feel deep emotions. I mean, you... I mean, if you, if you think of the slow movement, say, of the, of the Mozart G minor quintet, I mean, some of the people will know this piece, won't you? It, it is so full of the deepest sorrow and, and, and gorgeous, you know, 
whole gamut of emotion which you can't put words to. But a good piece of music, even a less good piece of music, you do, I mean, I try to find an emotional attachment to it. But I couldn't put, a, couldn't put any sort of word to that at all. It just is. Mm. Just is, isn't it? It is, yeah. Yeah. Well, have you a different thought on it yourself? No, I've just always been curious. So when I listen to, um, say, a piece of pop music, yes. uh, often it conveys a very clear emotion. So a very what? It's a very kind of clear emotion. It's clear like, emotion. It's yes. like an experience sort of bottles up. So this is the, what it felt like last time you were angry or broke up with someone or yeah. saw a marching band or whatever it might yes. be. Whereas in classical music, you know, there's often clearly emotion there, but I don't see any kind of obvious analogy to Good. an event in real life. Yes. And so I've always found that sort of confusing. Yes. Well, you see, raw, the, the, the raw emotions that the, the crowd feel, la foule, the crowd will react to very, very basic emotions, sex, or anger, or depression. But if you're exploring music that has lasted over centuries, maybe, only the most interesting has survived. And if you will give it a chance, you will find it far more interesting because there's more subtlety there, because you have humor. You have joy. You have the subtlest of, of connections, human connections, in it. But, but you can't put words to them. Uh, but you can, of course, if you're writing an opera. You're, you're, then you're, and a very interesting thing is film music, of course. I think there's been some very good film music written because the composers then got some center to which they can pin the music, and that's very stimulating for some composer. I used to do a, quite a lot of film sessions in the old days, and it was very interesting because you got some very good composers doing it. Does it answer your question at all? It does, yeah. <laughs> Gentlemen, next to... Richard. Bruno. Hello. Hi. Ali? Yes. What are you doing here? <laughs> You're eavesdropping, aren't I you? I dropped by in the of wisdom. Um, I was wondering if, you know, of all the careers you could have had in music... Say that again. Of I'm all the careers there. that you could have had in music, yes. you became a quartet player. Yes. So what is it about you as a person and a musician that has drawn you to spend your life exploring the quartet repertoire? Absolutely no question. As a cellist, the best thing you can do is play quartets. It's as simple as that. I mean, the solo repertoire is nice and, and, and there's, it's very challenging, and there's not a huge amount of it. And the trio repertoire is, is, is beautiful, and the, and the sonata repertoire is great. You know, it's lovely stuff, lots of lovely stuff. But in the quartet, there's everything. Goes from early Haydn right to Bartok and beyond. And uh, there's a vast repertoire. And I think the composers who wrote quartets wrote them for me. Thank you very much. <laughs> they wrote them for the most intimate reasons. That's what I'm really saying. I think the quartet repertoire 
it's easy to say that the most intimate music that Beethoven wrote was in his quartets and that Schubert wrote was in the quartets, quintets, Mozart, quartets, quintets, you know. That's not strictly true because Mozart was an opera composer and opera came into the quintets and quartets. If you play a Mozart quartet, you, you have to have a feeling of playing opera, you know, that sort of thing. But that's the reason why I played. As a cellist, it's the best thing you can do. It's made for cellists. It should be all cellists, the quartets. But the bloody violinists get in the way. <laughs> and you, of course, viola players as well. Sorry. Oh, and Keith. <laughs> uh, couldn't I just add that as, as a, um, a quartet player, the four of you try to arrive at some consensus on an, out on an interpretation. If you're in an orchestra, Yes. You're a very small cog. Yes. A you haven't a chance region. of expressing anything. There's you? a man up in front there waving his arms around, telling you what, what, what the way. And you have no respect him. for him either, do you? <laughs> Not much. <laughs> so I think that, that's a large part of the answer, isn't it? Yes. Half the privilege of playing quartets, you find that playing in an orchestra can be really rather frustrating. Terribly frustrating. I did have some. Right early on in my career, I had a very nice period of about four or five years in, in what was called the Netherlands Chamber Orchestra, Nederlands Kammerorchest. And the chap who directed it was a man called Simon Goldberg. And his knowledge of string playing, after having been to Casals, I got additional help from Goldberg. And in a chamber orchestra, there were three, three cellists, and we all seem to be pretty important in a sense, you know. So it, it's not like playing in a large symphony orchestra, but it's not the same as playing quartets. I was eating my heart out. I wanted to play quartets. Um, could I just uh, bring in the room? Yes? I'm here. Where are you? Yeah. I'm deaf, you see. Hello. <laughs> Um, I was very interested in what you said about the crucial importance of listening while you're playing this. Yes. Uh, to yourself as well as to everyone else. Yes. And um, it brought to mind um, uh, something that Benjamin Britten said when he was asked um, what was the secret of good conducting. He said it's nothing to do with good step, stick technique. It's a question of listening to everything that's going on. Yes. Yes. Well, I, I knew Ben. We played his quartets, you know, and, uh, and recorded them for Decca. So we spent a week with him learning those quartets. So I recommend that, re that record. It's about as close to Britain as you're going to get. But he was, he was a fantastic listener, and that was the way he played the piano. You could actually see that he was more interested in what the, his partner was doing. But I was... In the middle of a concert in Oxford, I suddenly lost the hearing in my left ear. But fortunately, it was the left ear, the ear that I hear my own playing. I could hear all the others play, so it didn't worry me. And ever since then, I haven't found it a, an encumbrance to have worse hearing on the left ear. Thank God it is the left ear, not the right ear. Funny, isn't it? Strange. Yama. Hello. Um, 
I have to admit that I'm not a musician and I don't play an instrument, but I do really love the cello. And, but I'm not very um, versed in uh, cello quartet music, so I wondered if you could give me your three top um, <laughs> cello quartets. My, my what? Your three favourite cello quartet or quartets that involve cello. So I can go away from this talk yes. and I can listen to something new and try to Well, number one, maybe, would be the Schubert Quintet, which has two cellos in it. Not one, but two cellos. Two violins, viola and cello. That is at the pinnacle of all chamber music repertoire. The end of Schubert's life, he never heard it. He never heard a performance of it. That's number one. <laughs> Number two, Haydn Emperor. <laughs> no, there are many Haydn quartets. Any, really, after Opus 20 will do, actually. You, you start, he wrote quite a few quartets, Opus 9, Opus 17 and stuff. From the Opus 20, they become masterpieces, one after the other. I would say... Get yourself a set of Opus 76 Haydn quartets. Okay. They're, they're about the crowning glory of his output, and there are six of them, so you're getting pretty good value that way. Okay. And then you will we'll have to have a Beethoven quartet, which is, and if you have the patience to listen very carefully and overcome a certain aspect of boredom because it's some familiar music. Any one of the late quartets which start from Opus 127, 130. I would say Opus 131, C sharp minor. Okay? okay. Opus 131. So Beethoven, Opus 131. That's it. Haydn, Opus 76. Schubert, Schubert Quintet. <laughs> <laughs> Um, uh, something I wanted to ask about is vibrato and how that, for me, you know, really fortifies the quality say say about vibrato. Yes. Enhancing kind of the, the, the playing, the emphasis, the emotion. And uh, I kind of wondered, what is it about it? And is it what is it about vibrato? That, and what, whether it's something that connects with uh, kind of something pulsatile, like the heartfelt feeling, yes. or um, uh, orgasmic kind of human experience, kind of. If um, you have an opinion, I do. <laughs> <laughs> um, how, how to start? The, the, the important thing about vibrato is that you don't put it there. Vibrato is not imposed on the music. Vibrato happens in a disciplined way. It has to be learned. But there is infinite variety in the production of a vibrato. And I think that the, 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 the um, what's it called? The, tell me. <laughs> <laughs> 
The Baroque. The Baroque. <laughs> the Baroque school. There are a few lunatics in the Baroque school who say that people didn't use vibrato at that time. It can't, it's not possible because vibrato happens. What they have discovered, though, is that in the 19th century and towards the middle of the 20th century, vibrato become, became more and more imposed on the music in order to make more impression, to be more exciting, all that sort of stuff. And vibrato became imposed on the music. And a lot of 19th century music is, or 20th century music especially, early 20th century, late 19th century, is sort of impressive when there's a lot of vibrato in it, you know. And uh, earlier music it doesn't sound so good when that sort of vibrato is imposed on it. So you have to be, as a player, you have to be sensitive to that. And even, I know myself that even when I'm playing non-vibrato, put my hand there and I'm determined not to use vibrato, the hand is still relaxed and there is a humanity about the sound. There is still an element of vibrato about it because if you suppress it, you suppress the music. So vibrato happens. But it needs discipline and understanding of the style, of the, again, of the shape of the phrase. It's a matter of, matter of um, good taste. Who knows what good taste is? I know what good taste is. <laughs> Hi. I'm very interested when you talked about being a channel for the music. The what? A channel for the music. Yes. And the sense that when our concept of ourself can be got out of the way, and it's not about me playing it. And in a way, the pure humanity that naturally comes through, and the connection for me with therapy of so many layers that have been culturally imposed of who I should be in this world, how yes, I should show yes. up. Wonderful, yes. And I'd love if you could just share, share a, bit, a bit more about this, the feel, and I guess the words that come to me are you being played by the music. You being played by the music. Yes, rather Yes, than indeed, indeed, yes. A part of the discipline is suppressing the ego. A part of the discipline, and that is the, that word listen again, don't do, listen. And in listening, you will do, if, you have, if you've disciplined your technique in that way, it will happen. It, I mean, of course you must make it happen, but, but in, in, the, in the act of listening you do try and suppress the self, you know, you know, that business of, I'm so clever, I'm doing this. No, no. Would you say, rather than a deliberate suppression of the self, it's more of an active listening 
in the sense yes. that we are all as human beings continually in interaction um, and that listening to each other. Yes, well, that's why we do it, really. It is, you don't do it because of yourself, you do it because of your, your, your part in humanity, you're this little dot of humanity. Surrounded by humanity, you observe things, you listen to things. And in that observation, you discover maybe beauty or, or anger or joy or humor. And that all comes through the music. It feels for me that when I hear music that really touches me and it can give such a relief to feelings inside that want to be expressed to resonate with, but there's so many layers on top of those emotions aren't allowed or they should look like something else. But in, in music that really captures it, there's a purity in, in the anger or in the joy, which isn't layered, it's just yes. the perfect note. Yes. I mean, if you're, you've got a limited period of time in this world, in, on this earth, as it were, and if you're listening to a piece of music, time passes indeed, and it is what we were talking about, time passing. And it's a good way to pass the time. And it's a way of observing some sort of a truth as it appears to you to be a truth. I mean, it's, it's no absolute. There's no absolute in it, of course. But um, you're, you're looking for some truth, aren't you? When you're listening as well as when you're actually performing. But when you're performing, you're listening. And that's the whole thing, isn't it? Yes. Thank you. I think the listening's... It. Touched me very much what you've shared. Thank you. Thank you. Um, my question is for Kate, actually. Um, Kate, um, my understanding is that the stuff of your work is words, um, but that uh, you're often listening to what is not being said or to the subtext of what is being said. I wonder if you think there's any analogy when you listen to a piece of music or whether you've learned something about the composer or the player in a similar sort of way, if there's any analogy at all? I have to think about that one. Sorry, is this still working? I mean, I don't think the stuff of my work is words. I think it's communication. So the words are the, the vessel, the words are the medium. Uh, and, and you know, and music is another means of communication. So I'm not just listening for the subtext. I'm also listening to what people are saying directly. But you're listening for various levels or various voices that may be going on in the wings or something like that. Um, I, I don't think I'd hear a piece of music any differently from how I'd hear uh, somebody who's come to see me. I, I would hear it as, as, as deeply as I can. Um, I'm not at all keen on the idea of trying to amateur psychoanalyze um, players or composers. I just want to know what they're communicating to me. And I think that one kind of listening very much informs another kind of listening. In a way, there, there are opportunities to listen and then to co communicate back. Um, we're talking about listening a lot. And of course, listening goes on all the time in many, many relationships. 
and it's how much people can listen and how much they can communicate. It's an important part of any relationship. And in a way, psychoanalysis and music are very privileged sort of situations in which listening is absolutely the, at the centre of what you're doing. You're not trying to do anything else. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question. Yes, thank you, Tim. Do you think... Sorry. Mm -hmm. Do you think that... Um, the, the, the sort of evil element in the world is due to people being unable to listen. I mean, people <coughs> in, uh, who, who want to fire guns and kill other people. Very Do you often. think it may be that? I, I wonder. I think it I may be. To me. I think it may be when, and also when they say, then attribute things to other people or other groups of people that mean that they think they don't need to listen to them. Such and such a group of people isn't worth listening to. Yes, that's right. Then something has really got lost. It's all to do with that rather than that, it's, isn't it? Exactly. And, and Imposing a will. Indeed. And so often it, in these situations, I think, of um, war, it, it, well, it is mediation and communication that's the difficult thing, isn't yes. it? And so I think it is due to situations breaking down in such a way that people can't listen to each other. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, sorry. My, my, my connection is that uh, my question is continuing what you've just raised, because I was very touched when you were talking about music as being civilising and the importance of listening, interacting, all this emphasis on a kind of healing or communicative thing. But I was very struck when um, reading the diaries of the Commandant of Auschwitz, where every Sunday they had a musical concert and Bach, Beethoven, Mozart, all the people you've been extolling were their favourites. And he writes that he loved quartets precisely because it showed the importance of working together. Now there's a kind of remarkable ambiguity about I think, the healing qualities you've been talking about, precisely because music has always and also operated in these barbaric and terrifying things which don't seem to bring about any healing or civilizing. So I just wonder whether you wanted to comment on that, probably both of you, given the high value you were placing on music. Well, I mean, sh shall I start? I, I, I would say that, that um, obviously in that situation they were past healing and that something which I would think of as splitting was going on, that they were splitting off really bad things into the people they were killing to justify this. And they had a nice little area where they could feel healed by music, but yes. there were these people who were just trash who'd got to be got rid of. And people can split their personalities, so you can have a very nice civilised experience and be really monstrous in another area of your life, sadly. So, you know, people aren't necessarily integrated in that kind of way. And in that situation, the most terrible splitting was going on, where they could have these lovely civilised concerts uh, and, and um, meanwhile be treating uh, a group of people like vermin so I think that's how the mind can operate. It's so complex. So people can be well beyond being healed by, by music, if, if that sort of thing is going on. Yes. 
it is strange, isn't it? It is. Because they were very keen on Schubert, of all people, they loved Schubert's songs, you know, the sheer sort of uh, romanticism of them. And the yes. Simple, simple truths behind them. Quite, and the way with, in, in Schubert, you're, uh, par excellence, you'll, you'll come through a, a very painful experience to hope and beauty and yes, so on, and yet right. somehow split off is this whole other area. Um, so one doesn't want to romanticise the healing power of music. Uh, it, it, it can be used in a, a very secluded sort of way, while other, other aspects are being completely disowned. Um, yes. I mean, they use music marches, don't they, to, to bring, bring soldiers to, to the front, don't they? The march is meant mm. to, to inspire the foot soldier to yeah. march, as it were. Mm. So that's its function, isn't it? Yes. Uh, I think my question has partly been answered, but I wondered if it, it could be expanded on, and what we're just talking about seems to bring up something which Kate was saying earlier, I think it's about listening, it's about openness to the other, as opposed to closedness off from the other. And I'm thinking about the dynamics within the quartet as a group of four people. Um, it's remarkable, isn't it, how many quartets have had tremendously long careers together, but one hears that it's not always easy. I mean, you describe a very clearly very congenial working environment with the other three members of the Allegri. Well, but there must have, there <laughs> that's what I want you some, to believe. There must have been some <laughs> I just wondered if you could say a little more about how uh, disagreements, dissensions, disputes are dealt with in an environment like that, where there is so much at stake and you know you've got to carry on working together. How does, how does that work? Well, do you remember the, the Amadeus Quartet? Um, and Norbert Brynin was asked, what is the most important thing about living together in a quartet? And he said, kindness, which I think was a good word. I mean, it's bloody hard to be kind sometimes, particularly when somebody <laughs> plays like a drain, you know, or you think they do. do you, uh, you know, and then you get things very badly wrong and they pounce on you and, and you wish they wouldn't do it and all that. You know, it's, it's a very, very... Tough situation, then you have to travel together, you have to eat together sometimes. Very rarely you even have to share a room together. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> but would I be right in thinking that, that, that um, in a quartet, you pretty much have to experience some pretty awful times. You probably have to feel, feel very angry or, you know, yes. you're describing the, like you do in any close relationship, I don't think, and nothing's just lovely, is it? And, and a good friendship is in one and quite, you may have had some quarrels or a, a, yes. a good intimate relationship. You see, relationship. the thing about the performing artist is, in a quartet especially, that when you get on stage, that has to fall away. Absolutely, and you have to be kind about it. Yes, but nonetheless, there that are must things. fall away, otherwise yes. it will be, it won't work. Absolutely, so you have to so have the, uh, th that those moments when the music takes over from the agony of trying to make it work, it's a good, it's a good moment. Sometimes happens in hmm. rehearsals, has to happen in concerts. When it doesn't happen in concerts, it's misery. Mm. But, you, but you have to, nevertheless, you have to be alive enough 
to allow yourself to feel the things you've been describing. It's your job. You know, you, so you actually have to stay alive to the difficulties, but get, yes, get yes. through them and yes. be kind about them, you're saying. Yes. So it's not just a nice, harmonious experience. And it's it's, it's uh, the four people travelling together and they, they have certain points when they had to give a concert and everybody has a different body clock, as it were, and you have to adjust your own um, metabolism in order to make sure that the, when you get to the, uh, to the venue for the, court, for the concert, that you're in top form. That's bloody hard to do sometimes, because you've been traveling all day and on a plane or whatever. And everybody has to deal with it as, as an individual, and sometimes you can get so much on each, uh, each other's nerves that you're exhorted, exhausted by the, the experience of traveling together. But uh, it, it didn't often happen, did it? I mean, we, we were fairly companionable, weren't we? I think you're right. That very often you, you might have furious arguments as a rehearsal, but somehow on the concert platform, things sort themselves out. They have to, don't they? They have to. Yes, and you, and, you, and you adjust, don't you? I mean, I went along with you, you went along with me, as it were, in a sense, we might have had a disagreement, but in the concert I was listening very carefully to you, see which way you were going to jump. And, and, and when you're playing, you don't have to admit that you were wrong, or that you're going to... No, exactly. Thank God you haven't got to bloody justify it. <laughs> Can I ask what your approach is to contemporary string quartets or advice to contemporary composers? Because obviously the genre has survived, the string quartet idiom has survived in the 21st century. So how do you approach contemporary string quartet writing? Well, I'm 86. And the avant-garde, avant-garde, let them be avant-garde. Most of it I don't understand. I don't know what, why on what it's trying to say. I just don't understand it. But that's maybe just because I'm, I'm not tuned in on it. I mean, the sort of bird whistles of this world are not, not for me at all. But I mean, I'm sure there are people who really understand it. I hope they're being honest with themselves. But I wouldn't be honest with myself if I said, well, I'm trying to sort of enjoy it. I don't bother anymore. Sorry. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lady at the back. And, and I was very struck listening to you both um, by the silences. Would you, would you repeat that, please? I was struck by the silences when you were talking together, both um, Kate and Bruno were talking together, the moments of silence. And I just wondered if you could say a bit about, um, from both perspectives. About what? From both perspectives, yes. both disciplines. About silence. Of silence in music and yes. in analysis. Yes. Well, music without silence is, is just continuous noise, isn't it? The silence in a beautiful piece of music is what frames it. It's like the frame of the picture. It's what surrounds the music is silence. 
And the performer's art is that of being able to convey to the audience, the listeners, that the silence is going to result in a unique, unique experience. There, there are, in most great classical pieces, it's very important that the silence before the actual attack of the music is really there. I mean, there's a Beethoven cello sonata, the G minor sonata, opus five, number two, which starts with a, just a G minor chord. I say, G. Now, the silence before that chord is absolutely vital. And if you don't play that chord with real intensity, you've, you've almost lost the whole performance. And the silence at the end of, of a f significant phrase, if you go on to the next phrase too soon, you've lost the magic. And the way you end a note before a silence is absolutely vital. And that, that is one of the things that's sadly neglected in an awful lot of performances. I hear the notes at the end of phrases are undisciplined and don't indicate what the silence should actually do. The way you tail off a note is how you continue afterwards. If you just tell off the note and you continue afterwards, it's like language. The silence is vitally important. Well, and silence is vitally important in psychoanalytic work for, for thought to see what comes up. There was one particularly long silence we, we had when I was thinking, will anything come up? But it, but it did. <laughs> and you can have silence, silence in order to, to see what will be there. And otherwise, you can be rattling along, like a bit of music rattling along, without any suspense. So you need silence for thoughtfulness. But you also need silence for the unexpected. You need That's silence. It. You, need, you need different kinds of silences. And Beethoven, in particular, will get yes. to a note. And you suddenly feel as if you're at the edge of a cliff. And you, you've just got to be there until the next note. But when you um, get to the edge of that yes. cliff, it's terribly important to be sure that that edge you've come to has form. Absolutely. You come to an edge, and that is an edge. Mm. And the way you end that note, the way that's done is artistry. That's it, what artistry it, it, is. It is artistry, yes. Yes. But in, in the psychoanalytic session, you have to be able to know that there are all these different kinds of silences, that you may be at the edge of a cliff, and that's very different from being thoughtful or being peaceful. Uh, there are many different kinds of silences, but the silences are hugely important um, in terms of being open to emotional experience. I think we ought to take one more question, and I'm very aware there are many more people who would like to ask questions, but Bruno, I think if he has the energy, will be in the bar afterwards and is very well willing to be approached. So one more question, please. Yes, I'm not a musician, but I'm left with some difficulty about the connection between abstraction and music. But I'm, I think I understood you to say this had to be thought of this had to be in words rather than expressed directly through the music. I didn't understand the other question. I'm sorry, I didn't understand the question. Would you mind repeating it? And speak very well into the mic, because I'm a deaf old so, soap, really. It, 
regarding the connection of abstraction in music. Yes. And I think I was left with, I think I understood that it's perceived in terms of it has to come through words. Uh, no, I, uh, no, yes. I don't think you've understood it the way I meant it. I think you can hear the shape of a phrase of music as if it were words, but that phrase has no words. It has form and it equates with language, but it isn't language, it's music. Have I made myself clear? Yes. So I think it covers commission and omission. Yes. Yes. Well, thank you very much, and thank you so much to Bruno and to Kate for coming and giving us your connecting conversation. As well as thanking Bruno and Kate, it falls to me to thank the people from Semerside, Lorraine Vivian and Paul Hoggett, and also from the bridge, Sarah Bartlett and Chris Lowe for their energies in putting together today. And um, also <coughs> the venue, which has been great. Um, there is another connecting conversation happening in the spring, and I can't tell you any more about it. It's a surprise, but I'm sure you'll all be, be pleased to hear that. Um, thank you very much for coming, and thank you so much to Bruno and Kate.